This is Kelly Johnson, Vice President in charge of the Advanced Development Project at Lockheed. I wish to present primal manufacturing stages of Lockheed's D-21 pilotless aircraft in the first flight of the joint MD-21 configuration. On December 15, 1964, the first D-21 arrived at the Desert Test Facility. Checkouts complete, the first D-21 was then moved into position for attachment to the launching aircraft's dorsal pylon. The destruct unit was placed within the D-21's forward section. Approaching the predetermined release point, the launch control officer turned on the fuel and ignited the engine. All lights indicated mission go readiness. The launch switch was activated. The drone separated and climbed out to the successful programmed flight. During the, the Cold War era, the SR-71 was responsible for capturing imagery, most notably of Russia. And during that time window, there were agreements being put in place. Uh, in particular, manned overflight became limited to this day. You have to follow the, the treaties associated with manned overflight and how you can go collect imagery or intelligence information from another sovereign country. We were no longer allowed to fly the SR-71 over our adversaries as a manned asset. And so they came up with the D-21, which was a drone. It was launched off the back of a, basically an SR-71. It was called M-12 Mothership. And so the, uh, the same imagery collection capabilities that the SR-71 was conducting, essentially the D-21 was taking on that role without the pilot in the loop. And so they would send the, the D-21 into the mission area, gather the information. It would return back to a location where uh, the vehicle itself, as well as the film, could be captured. And to this day, some of the information is still not released on what that system could do. And, you know, that was really the initiation of our capabilities into the, uh, the unmanned aircraft world. The first recorded unmanned aircraft were built as early as World War I. During the 1960s, Skunk Works developed the D-21. It was originally launched from the M-21 Blackbird, imagine an SR-71. This launch configuration was known as the MD-21, or the mother-daughter configuration. The D-21 was a supersonic unmanned aircraft that could reach speeds above Mach 3.3 and an altitude of 90,000 feet. At the top of this episode, you heard Kelly mention a destruct unit. The D-21 would self-destruct after releasing the camera module into the air for retrieval. Mike Swanson, John Clark, Kevin Llewelling, and Renee Passman have designed and developed many unmanned aerial systems. Check, check. This is Kevin Llewelling. Kevin is a deputy program manager here at the Skunk Works. An unmanned system is essentially an airplane for us because uh, we're an aeronautics company. There are obviously a lot of different unmanned systems. There's underwater systems. There's unmanned ground systems, and of course, since we're an aeronautics company, we 
we focus on unmanned aerial systems. And an unmanned aerial system is one where you don't have a man flying the airplane directly sitting in the airplane. But there is, of course, always a, a, a cockpit, if you will, which is generally considered a ground control station. So the, the airplanes, although we put a lot of automation in them so they can go and fly by themselves, there's always usually somebody that's in the loop making sure the airplane's doing what it needs to do and, and we're communicating with the airplane from a ground control station pretty much all the time. I think one important thing to remember is that unmanned is not a mission, right? It's not like, it's like, ooh, let's order the UAVs. Like, they're doing something. They're doing some sort of a mission. Again, this is Renee Passman, a Skunk Works program director. Whether that is ISR, gathering intelligence, or, you know, an air combat mission, or even if you look at the, a lot of the quadcopters and stuff that are available commercially, right, there the mission might be, well, either entertainment or uh, a lot of them, you know, will have like really cool cameras on them and you can get cool uh, drone video shots and stuff like that. So that's really ISR. We just don't call it that when you're taking pictures of the beach instead of, you know, other things. The military has always kind of looked at unmanned systems as serving the military well from the standpoint of doing the dull, dirty, and dangerous missions. And so when, when we have things to do, we don't want to, to put humans at risk. Unmanned systems are a good place to, to employ them. Especially when we start talking about going into high-threat environments with long-endurance missions, the exposure for a manned aircraft is much higher. This is Mike Swanson, the Skunk Works chief engineer. Mike has led the development of many unmanned programs. So yeah, there definitely there has been that focus on long missions, in harm's way, doing reconnaissance-type missions. Dull jobs are the things where if you wanted to fly for a very, very long time, you know, you have a limiting factor, which is often the human being. At the end of the day, the pilot will have to land and they have to eat and they have to take care of everything else that, you know, just human beings have to. And it wears on people as well. And so if you let the airplane fly as long as, as it was designed to fly, which could be these very long times, you can switch out the pilots along the way. So that's been pretty impactful. Developing unmanned aircraft is actually very similar to developing manned aircraft. Innovation is about those key rules, one miracle per program, and the ability to balance all the requirements from the customer. Kevin Llewelling explains. First and foremost, it's what are the requirements? The range, the distance we want to go, the types of sensors we want to put onto it, or the amount of endurance it needs to have, sizes the airplane. And then we get into some trade studies. And so if you need to be, quote-unquote, runway independent, that adds a whole new dimension to it. That may mean that we need to use a launcher of sorts. And then how do we recover the airplane when it comes back without a runway? Does it take off and land vertically? You know, that's one of my favorite topics. Now, oftentimes, we'll go and, and do gap analysis within the company to figure out where is there a gap based on what we've heard maybe, but on also what's the available equipment out there right now that's doing the current jobs where do we see that maybe somebody could do something better if they had something a little bit smaller, or a little bit larger compared to whatever they have? And so we do some internal research and then you go around and you share that with people and tell them the story. It was like, hey, I could do exactly the same thing as that other thing that's really big and expensive 
for something that's a little bit smaller or quite a bit smaller for a lot less, et cetera. And then after that, it depends. So often what can happen is the customer would sit with you and then say, okay, let's write this stuff down. Let's, let's start formalizing our requirements. Sometimes they say, okay, thank you very much. This is great. <laughs> We're going to go compete this. <laughs> There is a classification of UAVs that has been established that, you know, you've got Group 1 through Group 5 UAVs. John Clark is the vice president of the Intelligent Surveillance Reconnaissance and Unmanned Aerial Systems Portfolio. Group 1 UAVs, they're, they're the smallest of UAVs. You can think of that they're the hand-launched UAVs. And you can systematically work your way up to Group 5 UAVs. To the larger Group 4 and 5 UAVs that are designed for over 1,000-pound you know, type uh, gross weights, high altitude, longer endurance. And so things like the Tier 3 Minus that was developed in the mid-90s uh, to even things like the RQ-170. However, there are some emerging sort of ideas that are being kicked around. But if you look at it right now, it's really that Group 1 through Group 5 that everything's founded on. I'll, I'll speak for the smallest stuff. So, so like, for example, our Stalker XE platform broken into what they call the Group 2 class, which is uh, things that are between 20 and 55 pounds, but it weighs about 25 pounds. ISR, Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Platform. That means it has payloads on it, and its intention is to go out and fly around and collect data. Three parts of a UAV, right? Got the airplane, you got a payload, and you got a ground control element, whatever that is. Uh, in our case, it's a laptop. It's a Panasonic Toughbook. They're good for a lot of temperature range and people not treating them very good. That displays effectively everything that's coming in from the, the airplane. We use an Xbox controller that we'll use for two functions. One, we have a U-Drive mode that allows the airplane the pilot to effectively fly. It's sort of like a remote control airplane. And then the other mode, obviously, is to steer the payload around. Cameras, payload, yeah. Now, we've put other payloads on there as well. It all depends. For our shot stalker version, done some time ago, uh, that had an array of microphones on it. We were looking at a, a small synthetic aperture radar at one point. We're looking at LIDARs as well, so we could do lasing and do terrain mapping as another approach. And then even within the cameras, there's a number of different ones. We've got daytime cameras and then nighttime cameras, depending on, on when you're flying and what you're really trying to look for. Generally, that's always streaming real time to the ground. It's intended to support small teams. When it was deployed to Afghanistan with the Army, it was supporting route clearing missions where they had a number of trucks driving on a, in a convoy and they want a stalker to go ahead to look for the insurgents. More recently, stalker extended endurance has been used to get eyes on the ground during a California fire. When they ran into situations where they couldn't fly a manned observer airplanes because the smoke cover was so heavy, they used stalker instead. And with the cameras that we had on it, we were, they were able to find where some of the fire fronts were, and then be able to better plan what they're going to end up doing to send all the support staff out there to go either cut a line back further for to cut the fire off, or at least to start dropping some sort of fire suppressant when smoke lifted. It was well designed to support exactly that kind of stuff where there's no infrastructure in place, Especially when it's shut down, you have uh, hurricanes or tornadoes come through somewhere and they wipe out all the infrastructure. 
knowing now some of the problems that they had with Katrina, when you have water come that far inland, it starts mixing with all sorts of chemicals and horrible stuff that's, it, it makes a mess. Knowing that that's the potential, we could have planned to bring other sensors, potentially said, oh, hey, you've got gasoline over here, you've got chlorine spill over here. If we're able to detect those things, then you can warn people before they get into those areas, which makes it a lot safer for the first responders to get out there. We've publicly stated that it's flown 13 hours, uh, although it was designed for about eight hours. Early prototypes, though, where we were trying to really push the limit went well over 24 hours. And so that's a small little airplane that fits in the back of a car. Uh, it can be shipped pretty much anywhere in the world, of course, with the right export licenses. And having a capability like that that can fly super long times is just that we're, we're shattering records with stuff like that. And, and it reduces a lot of workload on the people that would employ them. So it's really pretty exciting. Long period of time. And even in that case... <laughs> The man is still the limiting factor, so you want a couple of pilots that you can switch out uh, so somebody can be paying attention to what the airplane's doing. Pilot would do a number of different things, so at least at the stalker level, right? They're in charge of effectively mostly every, every facet. So just like a regular manned airplane, you'd go into your pre-flight checks. That's the pilot's job. Before they would have done that, they would have planned their whole mission. They put that, load that all into the airplane's autopilot, and then step into their pre-flight checks, good to go, launch the airplane. Traditional launch mode for stalkers with the bungee cord. It doesn't look so elegant, but it's pretty cool because it's quiet and it's compact and easy to do. And We have some customers that are interested in rail launching, which is uh, about a 10-foot long beam, if you will. You set the airplane on a cradle, rolls on this rail, uh, uses compressed gas to accelerate the cradle with the airplane attached to it and fires it off the end. The last mode is uh, we built a VTOL kit that allows it to take off and land vertically. So three modes. From there, the pilot's going to, at least on stalker, They'll continue to monitor the platform flying its waypoints. But the primary objective is to look at what the imager is streaming back to the ground control station. So then you, you fall back and do what the pilot would normally be doing in the seat. You'd be looking around for things. But in this case, we've got sensors and stalker, and they you steer the camera around and look for points of interest. Uh, they may find something that they want to track and follow. They're monitoring how much energy consumption and then prepare it for landing. So they got to do a lot of stuff. And so the utilization of more autonomy is valuable. For larger systems, there's a lot more systems and there's a lot more checks. So as the systems get larger and they get more complex, you need more people to go and do a lot of different things on them. So, so the Skunk Works has actually have a long history of developing what we call groups one through five UAVs. To give an example of uh, one of the larger UAVs that the Skunk Works has developed, the X-44A. So the X-44A was a technology demonstrator that the Skunk Works developed internally back in the late 90s, early 2000s. It had a 32-foot wingspan, weighed a little over 1,600 pounds. So it's kind of, I guess, considered like a group four UAV. The motivation behind this was at that time um, in the mid-90s, we were looking at developing a family of systems approach to UAV development. 
technology demonstrator platform that we could develop rapid, low-cost manufacturing methods with, a common flight control architecture scheme that could be leveraged on other platforms, ground control station displays and communication architectures, and develop those, prove them out, and then be able to leverage a lot of those processes, those architectures on future UAVs that had more capability. If we're going to operate this in you know, different weather conditions, daytime, nighttime, and provide the, the pilot with better situational awareness, we had this called a virtual pilot display that essentially used real-world terrain data and a digital scene to represent what the pilot would see out the, the, the cockpit, essentially. We still had cameras as well, but that was one of the experiments that we did is looking at the, the resolution and the latency and, and the delays in, the, in what the pilot saw using an all-digital representation of what the world looked like versus the, a true camera perspective. You know, the idea being that if you're using this digital representation, it didn't matter if it was fog or nighttime or low visibility. You know, it was always sunny and, and clear as, as far as the digital environment was concerned. And so an example was a lot of that early work on X44A was translated directly into the P-175 project. P-175, a Group 5 UAS with a 90-foot wingspan. It weighed about 9,000 pounds and could fly as high as 65,000 feet. Mike Swanson and a team of engineers built this large UAV prototype in 18 months. Yeah, so the, the, the P-175 project that I led was really uh, comprised of a, a small team that was mostly co-located on the shop floor, consisting of engineers, mechanics, supply chain uh, specialists, business folks, you know, kind of a small, dedicated team that made that program a reality. So the projects I've worked on, we generally would have a contest to name the aircraft. And so when it came time to do Project 175, it really harkened back to our vision of what the Skunk Works of old looked like in terms of this small team of engineers and manufacturers working on the shop floor together, solving problems in real time, very quickly putting together a new capability. And so we, we were looking for like a historical tie-in to the kind of like the original Skunk Works origin story. And so we started looking at like the little Abner characters, the Skunk Works, you know, that the, the, the brood, the Kikapoi Joy Jews. And one of the uh, characters in there was this Indian chief named Lonesome Polecat. And he was one of the guys that was out there in the stills in the mountains brewing this Joy Juice. And so... You know, looked in a little bit further and said, hey, well, you know, Polecat is a nickname for a skunk. And so we said, that'd be kind of cool. Let's call this thing Polecat. And so we came up with a, a design for the vehicle, made it white on top, and we had two black stripes. And we also, at the time, it was sort of, I don't know, felt like uh, the Skunk Works identity was, you know, kind of fading a little bit or it wasn't as maybe valued as we thought it should be or something. And so one of the engineers on the program that also happened to be a fairly talented artist came up with this kind of angry looking skunk or a skunk with an attitude. We put him on the, the front of the nose gear door of the Polecat UAV. If you look closely at the nose gear from the, the, the 
P-175 vehicle. We got a, our angry skunk logo there. And then above and below it, there was a saying, Howard is my co-pilot. And there's a lot of speculation of who Howard was. And I guess I'll let the cat out of the bag here. You know, Howard was the flight controls engineer who developed the control laws and algorithms that made the aircraft fly. And so kind of felt like he was um, part of the vehicle, even though he was on the ground. But, you know, it was really flying because of him and some of the work that he did. The the latest Steve Pace Skunk Works book, they thought it had to do with uh, the Three Stooges. Totally wrong. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, Howard was actually one of the control engineers that was instrumental in getting that aircraft to fly. And so he was kind of like our co-pilot. Polecat's first flight was in 2005, and it retired in 2006 after a crash. But as retired skunk Ed Burnett would say, crashing is success, and there was a lot of discovery that came from Polecat. Here's John Clark. There's a variety of really novel things that we were able to do with Polecat, even though you know we didn't have the vehicle for long. On the manufacturing side, uh, looking at how we apply composites and composite manufacturing technology in a new way, we were able to leverage smaller manufacturing developments, expand and scale that into that 90-foot wingspan airplane. That stuff worked very well. Notable, we were able to uh, go from our initial concept to the vehicle ready to fly in 18 months. That system also allowed us to go explore a number of other technologies. In particular, there are technologies associated with how we do command and control of the aircraft. And uh, this is really the area where I'll say I had the most passion of changing the paradigm on how systems had traditionally been done. And beginning with Polecat, we were able to completely transform how that command and control and and human in the loop process, where we can still have that direct pilot control, but have a lot more autonomous capabilities baked into the system. That whole flexible autonomy approach that we really started expanding upon with Polecat has has continued to be a central point of our research and development since then. Flexible autonomy is the ability to flex between the different levels of autonomy in a UAV. From fully autonomous, automatically operating to a plan and adjusting to changing conditions with no operator intervention, to remotely controlled, where every action is approved by the operator. There are some missions that would require flying long distances before getting to the tough mission parts. The dull parts of the missions could be fully autonomous, and the UAV lets the operator know when it's in the mission area. As a foundation on our flexible autonomy construct, the basic framework there is that there is always a human on the loop. So from that dynamic, the operator really will always have a part of putting the inputs into the system and then how the system is going to respond and and always have the ability to override the system so that if it's making a decision that the operator doesn't agree with, that they can stop it, change it, you know, interact with it. Many of the Skunk Works engineers are mechanical engineers, aeronautical engineers, electrical engineers, and they're focused on the physics of the aircraft. But autonomy is computer science. The computer scientists are developing at the chip level. The goal is to fuse all the data coming into the aircraft, allowing the UAV to make better decisions. If I want to make an autonomous decision, what kind of inputs do I need? I mean, just think about what humans do. What are the inputs that we, we take in to make a decision? You know, we've got our senses, 
you know, I smell something, I hear something, I see something, I taste something, I feel something, you know, you get your basic senses and then, then we're processing. So you have to think a little bit more about what does it take to process the bare minimum data in order for me to make a decision. I would say uh, autonomy and artificial intelligence are nearly synonymous. We operate autonomously as humans, right? We make decisions on our own. Obviously, we work within guidelines and rules versus automation. Automation is going to be a prescribed path of if-then-else statements. If you detect this thing, then do this kind of thing. If I get into a situation where I can't fly because there's too much wind, turn the other direction, right? It's if-then-else, very prescriptive. Autonomy is more synonymous with artificial intelligence. You, you have to train it to be able to make decisions that cover a whole variety of things. And you can't give it all information, right? We're, we're not given all the information all the time to make our decisions. We've been trained to make a decision. So autonomous would be, uh, it's not deterministic. You may not know exactly what the response is going to be. It may be logical, but it may not be what you expect. And so, again, autonomy and artificial intelligence, to me, are very similar. So the whole thing with, you know, is the future all unmanned? To me, that's not a technology question. It's a policy question, right? Particularly when you're talking about the defense industry. So there's really a policy question of what are we comfortable to allow to happen when the human isn't right there at the pointy end of the spear. One technology element, though, that is very important to remember is sometimes people use unmanned and the idea of autonomy interchangeably. But if you think about the very kind of complex environment that our airplanes operate in, there's a lot more that needs to happen before you truly have an autonomous system, not just an unmanned system. And so I think that's the technology area, specific technology area, that you know requires a lot of development. And then it needs to, at the same time, also come along with some policy of, okay, how much autonomy are we willing to give some of these unmanned systems? And a lot of that isn't a technology question. It's a human trust and comfort and all those types of more fuzzy things as opposed to is it possible or not? Because it'll be possible long before most people will be comfortable with it. To Renee's point about trust, John Clark and his team discovered the need for flexible autonomy due to UAV pilots and operators questioning autonomous decisions. In the early days of our research, we had identified that trust became one of those issues. And as the user is interacting with the system, if they don't understand why it made a decision and they don't believe that it's the right decision because intuitively they see something that may be a, a better decision, you run into this issue that the, the human in the loop simply doesn't trust how uh, the system is performing or behaving, which creates a, uh, a dynamic where, once again, you've got a user that's focused on why did it do this instead of what am I trying to accomplish in my mission? And so that leads to a, a trust challenge. And that's part and parcel why this whole flexible autonomy construct that we created was developed so that uh, we could allow our users to gain trust in the system and its behaviors as a function of time in the construct of different missions, because not every mission is the same. So given that, we've built a capability that allows us to build that trust over time. 
Now, from a, a longer-term perspective, is the emergence of the uh, the artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies are being introduced into our systems. I believe that there's an opportunity to help accelerate a lot of that trust because the, the, the construct of how we train the systems is going to be in concert with how the humans are using the systems. So uh, I just recently went for a drive in a Tesla. It has their you know, autonomy feature in it. It's essentially an autopilot. And for example, you can do a lane change with the car and you're just touching the turn signal and it automatically moves from one lane to the next. The level of accuracy that you need in your GPS uh, coordinates doesn't exist using common available GPS. They have to detect where the edges are. And so using real-time data, cameras and things of that nature to find those, those new boundaries. And it might miss it sometimes. It's not a driverless car, right? You're still there. So that's where it still comes back to the responsibility of the person driving the car. So with cars, it's two dimensions, effectively, right? We're going forward and aft, and we're going left and right. In the air, there's three. Let's say it's in an environment, and it has a set of rules where it says, if you detect something that is a hostile situation, go do the following things, and we just let it run wide open. That is something that it's going to take some time for people to understand and and become comfortable with. But I would say that just like the car driving in the road and detecting where the lines are as it does a lane change, we'll be using sensors in the airplane and have been doing some of this work. Now, the next thing in decision-making, right? We want to let our airplanes shoot at things or neutralize things or whatever that might be. That's a whole another level of discussion. But, but I think there are some good correlations with some of the technology that is being done. You have to get comfortable with it. I, th- I think you're going to see the, the autonomy just getting smarter and smarter with more artificial intelligence kind of algorithms and more collaboratively interact with manned aircraft systems. There's a lot of discussion and focus on like, you know, manned, unmanned system teaming. And so having these as a augmenting our manned fighter aircraft by flying in formation and carry weapons and adding an, another dimension to how we would conduct some of our combat missions in the future by using these unmanned systems. And so I think you'll you'll see more exchange of information between manned and unmanned aircraft. You'll see more flexibility and decision making on the unmanned systems to do more operations by themselves without the intervention of a human. The U-2 is such an amazing jet. It has the most payload carrying capability. It, it provides the most power for the most payloads. I mean, it is. there has yet to be another platform out there that does as much as the U-2. And for that reason alone, and its long endurance, even with a man in it. I mean, it is just such an amazing jet, and it does such a great job. So to catch up with uh, that is going to take some time and, and obviously some investment. It's so powerful. It carries so much capability that it could become a control node for even unmanned systems that are flying low, potentially lower uh, or elsewhere. And that collaboration between that manned asset that is, is kind of a conductor of whatever the mission is that's going on uh, working with other assets is is a pretty powerful concept. Where we're focusing a lot of our energy is on how to consume large volumes of information and make heads or tails of that information so that you have better understanding of the environment that you're operating in, advancing you know that type of AI so that 
the systems can then make smarter decisions. Uh, we are also looking at decision-making aspects with the software. However, that's where you have to interleave, I'll, I'll say, safety locks of sorts to ensure that you've always got a deterministically safe outcome. Yeah, because yeah, you got visions of like Terminator or something and Skynet and, you know, how far do you take it? It is something that I think we need to be very thoughtful about because I think there are potential unintended consequences. I mean, even when you look at the ability to hack into things, I mean, I think, that, I think there's vulnerabilities that you got to make sure you're considering. And that's why there's a lot of emphasis on cyber right now to protect those. And I think we just, yeah, we got to make sure that the technology is not outpacing our ability to understand and can control it because I think it could potentially get out of hand. And, I mean, as a technology company, I mean, we're very motivated and excited about pushing the boundaries and moving the, the autonomous capabilities forward and machine learning and AI. But yeah, we, we definitely have those kind of conversations too, especially from my role as the Skunk Works chief engineer, looking at it from a safety standpoint. And, you know, when you start talking about putting weapons on autonomous vehicles, you know, what do those safety interlocks look like? What are those controls that we have in place? And, and, and when we go fly around test ranges, what are we doing to make sure they're going to go where we think they're going to go and they're not going to get away from us? And so, yeah, absolutely. Mo at least for right now, especially on the military side, they're adopting a more of a conservative approach to the, the level of autonomy and things like that. I mean, I think, you know, for at least the foreseeable future, the, certainly the idea is that there's always there's going to be a, a, a human in the loop when it comes to making some of those, you know, really critical kind of decisions. But going out and flying uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions, it makes a lot of sense. That's part of those dull, dirty, and dangerous missions. You send them into places to go look at stuff. That's a good place for, for art, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and aut true autonomy to start uh, getting employed uh, and, and in a way that's a safe manner with, with a good set of rules assigned to it. I mean, the ability to have a unmanned system react and respond to you know certain conditions or contingencies on its own that's probably i guess to me that's you know probably the biggest thing that's kind of cool about work on the unmanned systems is seeing them behave in different environments and adapt to it and how that might might or might not be different than what a person would do if they were flying it Inside Skunk Works is created in Palmdale, California and Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for Words of Wisdom with John Clark and Kevin Llewelling. To see photos and read more about the D21 drone, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. In your career, you can be certain that if you have an innovative idea and it's something that's not been done, that people will tell you no. People will tell you all the reasons why it can't be done. And if you've got conviction in your idea, don't let that first no dissuade you from continuing to pursue that idea. I can tell you that with all the autonomy technologies that I've been so fortunate to have, have helped lead and, and grow into a significant capability, I was told no a lot all the way from we don't do that type of stuff here to the users will never use this type of capability to any number of them. I, I could probably spend an entire podcast talking about 
all the things and reasons I was told that uh, what we now do today was not possible. And so advice to that engineer would be don't let somebody else's lack of creativeness and lack of vision stop you from doing great things. I'll pull a little bit on something that John Clark mentioned recently in one of his webcasts, which I agree with, is you got the job you have to do. So step one, do your job. When you find that you want to do something else, start reaching out, talking to the people that do those things and and offering to help and get committed to it. Get committed to it. I mean, part of the, the key to becoming an expert in an area is just be a sponge, be open about what you do and don't know and uh, ask for advice, ask for input. Uh, humility is a big piece of that too, right? Where everyone's learning. And your goal coming to Skunk Works generally is to be as broad as you possibly can. Personal commitment is a key piece. And I tell you, over time, I've been under a lot of pressure, but it's been more excitement than really pressure. You know, I go home and I'm thinking about the job, not because it's like worrying me. I mean, there's been some worries sometimes, but when you think about the job and can't put it down, that's when you know you're doing something exciting. <laughs>